First Timothy 4, verses 6 to 11. This is the word of the Lord. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, Timothy, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Well, this is the Word of God. So, we're in a series on worship. Uh, and most of the time in this series, we've been talking about the corporate elements of worship, the things that we do together on a Sunday. But last week, Callum introduced us to uh, the idea of worship Monday to Saturday. Um, so, you know, the Lord's Day, the day that we call Sunday, is fundamental, it's necessary, it's foundational. But throughout all of church history, uh, member, Christians have been thinking about how do you express daily worship? Uh, what, does that, what does it mean? What does it look like? And to answer that, you have to go back to the basics. What's worship? And the way we've defined worship a couple times in this series is by saying worship is uh, when you ascribe value to something, ascribing love uh, or value to something that you love or adore. The Bible has a pretty particular word for worship of God, ascribing value to God, and that word is to glorify. Uh, it's very peculiar to, to the Bible. The word glorify means to worship. And in Second Peter chapter 1, Peter says that God has given us gifts for our godliness, and those gifts for pursuing godliness, he goes on, are for the glory of God, he says. In other words, Peter's getting at this. Pursuing godliness, whatever that might mean, is the day-to-day rhythm of worship because it's for God's glory. So what does worship Monday to Saturday look like? Um, Callum introduced that to us, that idea to us last week, but this week, uh, the answer from Second Peter and from First Timothy is the word godliness. Godliness is the day-to-day rhythm of worship. So, uh, the question is, of course, how do you? What is godliness? How do you get godliness? Uh, and First Timothy four gives us an answer to both of those questions. And the answer to those questions, especially how do you get godliness, traditionally, historically, has been called um, something under the category of uh, spiritual formation. Uh, some people call it formative practices. Some people call it spiritual disciplines. Some people call it spiritual habits, habitual daily acts of worship. All sorts of words that you can use. Um, but spiritual formation is w- concerned with uh, daily acts of worship that are transforming or forming of your heart. So we're going to look at three things from this passage about godliness. Uh, godliness. First, godliness is a command. Second, godliness is formed. And third, godliness is hard. Okay. So first, godliness is a command. Paul is uh, writing to Timothy in this book. So it's not a book by Timothy, but it's a letter from Paul to Timothy. And Timothy is a very young pastor, um, elder in the church, and he was left in Ephesus after Paul left after Paul planted the church in Ephesus. And the context of the passage we read, and basically the whole letter, is that there are people 
in Ephesus that are basically adding prescriptions or, or certain ethical codes to the gospel uh, to define what it means to be a Christian. So um, some of those were uh, that people were saying, if you wanted to be a Christian, you can't be married. In other words, what they're suggesting is that uh, you can't enter into any type of sexual activity if you want to be a Christian. The other thing that they were talking about was that um, you have to eat certain things if you want to be a Christian and not eat certain things if you want to be a Christian. And Paul is writing this letter, and basically right before we enter our text, he says, no, uh, all that stuff is good, by the way. Um, God created it, and it's good. It's good for you to do it, to, uh, to, to enter into anything that God created in this world, because what he created is good, to eat, to drink, all that. So, so he says, look, be thankful and pray, and all of those things will be made holy for you. In other words, it's appropriate for a Christian to engage in the goods of this world, as long as you're thankful for them and praying over them. Uh, that's his basic idea. Now, that's the context, that's the background. The logic of our passage, then, is, is basically this. He's saying, don't be like those guys. Because the guys that are teaching that kind of stuff, who are going around the local church and saying, if you want to be a real Christian, you've got to do this and this and this, those guys don't have godliness. That's basically what he's saying in our passage. So the contrast, you can see it in verse 7. He says, don't listen or don't teach these silly, irreverent myths, he says. Um, uh, instead, in the next, train yourself in godliness. Or in other words, have uh, he's talking about doctrinal discernment. The ability to know what's true and what's false. And the ability to do good, uh, to know how to act versus how to not act. He's saying, uh, that's, what it, that's a basic sense of what it means to have godliness. So he's contrasting the two things. But he says in verse 6, tell everyone at Ephesus. In other words, point out to everybody the difference in what they're teaching and what godliness is. Tell everybody the difference in those two things, okay? Um, Then he ups ups the ante a little bit, and he says, in fact, in verse 7, train yourself in godliness. Um, That's a singular, by the way. It's saying, Timothy, you train yourself, singular, in godliness, not plural you. But then even more, verse 11, in in case you think you were out of the woods and didn't have to train yourself in godliness because you're not a pastor or elder, like Timothy, uh, he says in verse 11, Timothy, command and teach this to everyone. So three times he goes through that. He ups the ante every time. Look, in other words, what does this mean? What it means is this. Paul has just given a command to the church. Everyone is expected to train themselves in godliness. That's the command. Uh, He's saying it's for everybody. And he's saying it's not a choice. So the question is, what's godliness? Uh, Most basically, godliness is another word for holiness. It's the little Greek word here, eusebia. And it means something like reverence or awe um, and devotion, deep devotion to God. Uh, Holiness. Hebrews 12, 14 uh, says, without holiness, no one will see the Lord, which means that the New Testament takes holiness really seriously, really seriously. And basically, from this passage alone, you can kind of discern the idea of what he means by godliness. The first thing we've already kind of seen is that what he means is godliness is the ability uh, to discern sound doctrine, as he puts it. 
um, which means godliness is at least in part an ability to know the difference in truth, what's true and false about Jesus, about Christianity. Um, it's a theological uh, education of sorts. It's an ability to, to know things, to know uh, truth from, from falsehood. But the second thing that is really clear about godliness throughout all of Paul's letters, you can get from uh, Philippians 2 and other parts of this letter. Uh, he connects godliness in, in Philippians 2 with this command, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for this pleases the Lord. Um, so the second thing we see is godliness is directly connected to good works, uh, which is in the negative sense, avoiding sin, and in the positive sense, doing good deeds, uh, works of mercy, loving your neighbor, um, loving, loving God, loving neighbor, and uh, doing that in external actions. Uh, so, so far, we know godliness at least is the ability to know what's true, uh, to discern doctrinal uh, truth well. It secondly, is the ability uh, or the, the actions of good works, of avoiding sin and, and doing good, loving your neighbor. But it's not simply to know something, and it's not simply to do something. There's a, there's, those are both external. Those are both externally oriented. But there's, there's an internal sense as well in this passage uh, that's all over the Bible, but it's, kind of, it's somewhat uh, covered up a little bit in this passage. Um, a third sense, and it's in verse 6. In verse 6, um, he says, If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. And then the little verb, being trained in the words of the faith. Now, in verse 7, he says, he's, the command is, train yourself in godliness. And in verse 6, you have the same word, being trained in the words of the faith, but it's not the same word. So the NIV and the NASB translates it differently because the ESV chose to use the word train, but the actual word there is the word, you will be nourished. So if you do these things, if you pursue godliness, if you teach about this, he's saying you will be nourished. Now, what does it mean to be nourished? Nur- to be nourished, it's a metaphor, right? Be- being nourished is a metaphor. And r- being nourished doesn't mean just knowing something with your intellect or acting out something. Um, being nourished uh, means that you actually thirst and hunger for something. In other words, being nourished means you were thirsty or you were hungry, and that thirst and that hunger has been quenched, you see? Um, so, in other words, learning sound doctrine and doing good is part of godliness. Uh, good things. Um, but what he's saying is that true godliness is done in such a way as that when you know, learn about God, or pursue God, knowledge of God, and do good works, it's as if you're drinking water in the middle of the desert. That's, that's, that's the, the internal sense of godliness. Uh, it's not mere knowledge or mere action, but it's the experience of God in knowing and acting, you see. Um, and that's why we read Psalm 63 in the first reading. Psalm 63, one of the great Psalms of David, um, is deeply experiential, uh, and it's the Old Testament's center passage of what it means to be godly in the Old Testament. This is Dave, David. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land. Now, this is language of, of thirst and hunger and, qu- and quenching, right? And it's got God as its object. It's deeply experiential. It's experiencing God. Uh, this is the sense of godliness. 
from David. But the other thing to notice is that this is covenantal language. So we, we talked about this last week in terms of the crucifixion when Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was covenantal language. This is covenantal language. You see, he says at the beginning, Oh, my God, my God. Uh, this is the language of the Abrahamic covenant. It's when God came to Abraham and said, uh, I will be your God, you will be my people. You will call me my God, and I will call you my people. You know what this means? This means that when David's out in the desert of the soul, hungering for God in godliness, deep experiences with God, deep desire for God, the only way that he's doing that is because he's already been found by God. You see, this is the language of the covenant. It means he's already been called one of God's people. He's already been found by God. In other words, what, he, what he's saying to God is, I will seek you because I have been found by you. I will seek you because I've been found by you. In other words, godliness for Paul, godliness for David, is not a search for God where you... It's, it's not being spiritual. It's not the modern 21st century sense of spirituality where you're just seeking after the transcendent or something like that. Uh, it's more specific than that. It's not a search for God for the first time where you find God, but it's the cultivation of desire for the God who has already found you, you see. Um, in other words, you can't have godliness without the gospel. You can't have godliness without the gospel. And that's why in our passage in First Timothy, right before he says, Timothy and all the people, train yourself in godliness, he mentions in just the passage before that, in chapter 3, verse 16, uh, he talks about the mystery of godliness. So, in other words, what's the mystery or the revelation behind your ability to be godly, to pursue God, to, to be holy, to, to want God, right? And this is the mystery of godliness. This is what he says, uh, 3.16. He, he was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up into glory. In other words, what's the mystery that stands behind the ability to be godly? <laughs> Jesus Christ humiliated. That's his answer. That's, that's the background that he's giving. In other words, Jesus Christ, he's saying, was humiliated in order that God would find you, in order that you would seek him. You see? Jesus Christ was exalted in order that in him you would be found by God and you would turn and you would seek God. So the basic idea of godliness is seeking after God, but it's doing so uh, walking on the ground of the gospel. So the Christian life, this is the Christian life. It's, the Christian life is the pursuit of godliness, Paul is saying, and it's where you walk on the ground of the gospel. The gospel is the, is the floor that you're walking on. Without it, you would fall. But it's looking up to a horizon that stands off in the future, and that horizon is God himself. You see, godliness is not just a knowing things about God. It's not simply doing good deeds. But what he's saying is that in both knowing and doing, you're deeply desiring, hungering and thirsting. Uh, that God is the only thing that can satisfy, that can nourish the thirst and the hunger that you feel deep down in the pit of your stomach. That's, what he's, that's how he's describing godliness. Um, now, are you, are you hungry? Are you thirsty? Are you hungry or are you thirsty for God? I mean, one of the, one of the deep evidences of being found by God is, is being hungry and thirsty for God. 
it's what the what the text is teaching here. I mean, it's um, do you have do you desire him? Do you desire him? Um, but even if you feel God is cold and absent, uh, even if you feel God is cold and absent, and, and your heart is far from him, uh, does it bother you at all? Does it actually does it hurt? Do you want him back? Do you want him back? Uh, this this too means you are seeking godliness. The simple desire for him, even if he's cold, even if he's distant, even if it feels like he's far off. So the question then becomes: How do we get there? How do we get there? Uh, how do we how do we get how do we develop desire for God? How do we get to that horizon? And that brings us to the second point. The second point is this: Godliness is formed. Godliness is formed. Uh, in other words, the, the gospel is not something you do, but something done for you. Christ for you. But godliness is something you do. Godliness is something you do. Uh, something you pursue. Something you have to be trained in. Uh, it, it works out by the Spirit, but it is something that you do, that you engage in. Uh, how do we become people who want God, who worship Monday to Saturday, and our affections for God? And the answer throughout all of church history, throughout through all the great theologians and, and our confessions and things like that is that we have to we do have to work at it walking on the ground of the gospel not legalism but we have to work at it um now what is it so the the word in this passage that points us to that is the word train in verse seven train yourself in godliness this is something you're being called to act on right uh what does the word train mean what does it mean to train in godliness now you know that this greek word the, the greek word is gymnasio uh, G-Y-M, gymnasio. Uh, it's the derivative, it's the word, root word for where we get gym or gymnasium from, right, today. And what do you do at a gym? What do you do at a gymnasium, right? You, you train, you work out. Uh, this morning, uh, I was publicly shamed for being an advocate of CrossFit, uh, by, by our dear, dear brother and, and leader. I'm just kidding. Um, but tonight I'm vindicated, right, because train, Gymnasia, there it is. Um, uh, seriously, though, in verse in verse nine, uh, in verse eight, this is he makes it. He couldn't make it any clearer. In verse eight, he in verse eight, verse eight is a proverb. He says, "For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also the life to come." Now, this is this is a proverb from the first century. Uh, while bodily training is of some value. And different words have been used in the proverb and other Greek texts. Um, godliness is of value in every way. He's, he's quoting there from a, a kind of a proverbial saying that was floating around at the time. And what he's saying is this. Athletics, which requires daily practices, is valuable. Uh, training your body, he's saying, is valuable. It's got some value to it. But training in godliness, same word, gymnasio, gymnasio, is of much more value because while the former is just pertaining to your, to your physical body, which will, will die eventually, uh, godliness extends beyond the grave. It, it goes beyond death. It's of much more value than simple physical training. Uh, that's what he's saying. Um, so you can see, I mean, Paul draws very direct, strikingly, that uh, training in, in righteousness or godliness is, has, an, has a relationship to the way you would train your body at the gym. Um, and what he's saying is this. He's, saying, he's talking about daily, habitual, spiritual practices. Um, 
that that uh, that we're called to. Now, Callum hinted at this last week because um, our word for godliness here is the word I just mentioned, Eusebia. But a lot of times you'll see the word Eusebia just translated as worship, and it can be translated just as worship. Um, but there are all sorts of different words that can be translated worship in Greek. And in English, we only have one word that really means worship, and it's worship. But in Greek, there's all sorts of them. And here you get Eusebia, which, which means more, something more like deep desire for God, awe and reverence and devotion to God. But Callum pointed out last week another word in Romans 12, 1, uh, where, where uh, Paul says, uh, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. This is your spiritual form of worship, right? And that's a different word. It's not Eusebia, but it's the word latria. And the word latria, and Callum pointed this out, is uh, a word that comes from the Old, Old Testament idea of the practices of a priest. When a priest goes into the temple and he performs daily practices, he has to light the candles. He has to do the sacrifices. He has to cook. Cook. He has to do all sorts of things. Uh, that's the word latria. In other words, these are the daily sacrifices of praise, is the word that's been adopted, that a priest was called to. Daily practices, you see. And what Paul is saying is that now uh, you're a priest. If you're in Christ, you're a priest. And you've also been called to daily sacrifices of praise. That's what he's saying. Now, they're not the same thing as the priests of the Old Covenant. Yours are completely different. Jesus has made, uh, uh, he's, he's put away that type of a priesthood. But the point is that he, he's saying in both Romans 12 and in 1 Timothy 4 that we are called to these daily practices. He uses the, the metaphor of working out like, like an athlete in 1 Timothy 4. And he uses the idea of the priest, like a priest who goes into every day faithfully into the temple doing their daily morning practices uh, at the temple in Romans chapter 12. Um, so, of course, the question that we're throwing back again, how? What are these practices? Uh, what, is the, what does the Bible teach us about what this looks like? Um, how do we shape our desire for God in, in specific ways? And, and what do these practices look like? Pre, these pre, new covenant priestly practices. Well, look, the, the, the answer is simple, really. I mean, it's the same thing every preacher always says it's a duh kind of an answer but prayer in scripture right um prayer in scripture that's the new covenant the new the new testament formula uh but when you attach prayer prayer in scripture reading to godliness it's it takes on a slightly different form because than than what we might be used to normally because when you attach it to godliness prayer is not uh prayer for the sake of godliness for deep desire for, for God is not simply petitionary prayer. So it's not just prayer that's prayer for me's, um, for me's prayer, things for me. It's actually, it's more prayer that enjoys God in prayer, uh, that rests in God while you pray. In other words, it's prayer that's reflective and meditative on God's person, on who he is and what he's done on his great and mighty works. It's prayer that really seeks to, to ask God to enjoy God. Um, that's more of the sense of prayer connected to this idea of godliness. It's, it's the prayer that asks for deep desire for him. To hung, to, it's prayer that asks to be hungry and thirsty. Um, same thing with, with Scripture. Uh, you know, tons of the church fathers uh, and our 
fathers and, and mothers and brothers and sisters in the faith before us have all reflected on this uh, a lot. And one of the things you see pretty consistent through it, throughout church history is that scripture reading as a, as a formative practice of training and godliness takes on more of the sense of scripture reading as prayer than it does simply scripture reading as information gathering. So it's not simply scripture reading that's there for content, to learn what happened and what this might mean and all this. There is a time and place for that. Um, and of course, we're doing some of that now. Uh, but w- with respect to godliness and spiritual practices, that type of scripture reading, daily scripture reading, is, pri- is priority number one, is as worship. So it's, it's praying the text. Praying the text back to God. Reflecting on God as you read about God and praying it back to God. That's the main sense throughout history that people have gathered of praying and reading scripture in relation to godliness uh but there's there's a lot more practices um look god uses other people as iron sharpens iron so one man sharpens another god uses individual habitual practices as well uh one of the great examples of a person who's thought a lot about this and a place that's done a lot of work on just developing day in and day out relationship with god was john calvin and when he came over from Roman Catholicism to Protestantism, and he became the pastor in Geneva, in Switzerland. He, um, he, he, what he realized was that he needed to, to change things that had happened in the Roman Catholic Church in the past, especially in the monasteries or the monastic communities, and to not simply throw it all out, but to take what was true and what was good and what was best and to, in a way, democratize it. Uh, so, for instance... Um, the monasteries, the monastic orders, right? They were, every single day, they were deeply devoted in those monasteries to praying, to working with their hands, right? To studying the scriptures, to memorizing the Psalms, like all good things, right? Uh, but Calvin said, but they shouldn't have gone and left society and become monks to do it. So in other, in other words, he said, we're going to democratize this. And we're going to put in these practices for our people here in Geneva, but we're going to make it for everybody. It's not, there's no clergy laity distinction here. These practices are for every single person. And so uh, Calvin did all sorts of things. I mean, he, um, one of the things Calvin did that uh, will not be anything crazy to you is that he put pews in to the church. Um, so prior to the Reformation, there weren't pews in churches or chairs or anything. Uh, because people stood around and basically like just kind of chatted while the priest did their thing um, because you weren't involved you didn't even take the lord's supper the eucharist i mean you just hung out and chatted and left kind of whenever it was all done it was all in latin anyway so you, we, you might not have understood it if you weren't educated calvin put pews in and he said we're going to be devoted to learning what the bible says to praying the bible uh to having daily practices and one of the most important things he did um is that the our own tradition, the Westminster tradition followed after, was that he wrote a catechism uh, for his people, a, a form of question and answer, of learning uh, about, about, about theology and about God. And in the catechism, he also put in what's called a daily office, uh, which is kind of an older way of saying a daily program for, for prayer and Bible study, and that he, they distributed to everybody in the city. And uh, in the daily office, it, it wasn't super programmatic, but it just had suggestions. It said things like uh, pray five times a day, pray when you wake up, pray at every meal, uh, pray the Lord's Prayer and your own prayer in the morning while you read the Bible, that kind of a thing. Um, so that was Calvin's daily office. 
Um, but, but following on from Calvin's tradition, uh, tons of people have developed this kind of a thing. One of the most famous, and I'll just list a couple resources here because we don't have, I can't exposit all these different practices that I'm about to list. Um, that would take a whole series. But um, this is just an introduction. Uh, Don Whitney is probably the most famous uh, theologian today that, and pastor that's reflected on developing as a person who is spiritually disciplined. So he has a book called Spiritual Disciplines. And here's all the uh, things that he lists that he sees in the New Testament of spiritual disciplinary practices or spiritual formation practices. Uh, Bible reading, prayer. These are, there's a chapter on each of these. Bible reading, prayer, praying the Bible, worship, corporate, individual, and family worship, uh, purposeful evangelism, mercy, acts of mercy, acts of service in the church, stewardship with all sorts of different resources, not just money, Fasting, silence and solitude, uh, journaling and writing, um, education, learning or biblical and doctrinal development, and catechism, catechesis. Uh, and other people that have talked a lot about this, you can go early, go to um, St. Augustine and his confessions, Jonathan Edwards, Religious Affections is a great book to look at, or, or, but in the modern world, easier is Don Whitney, um, Spiritual Disciplines is or Eugene Peterson, also very helpful. The point is this, there's no one right way. There's no one right way. Um, that was one of the things that the reformers were upset about, is that there's no one right way to live godliness and to, and to develop uh, train in godliness day to day. But the text here, First Timothy 4, gives a command, uh, and it says that you must pursue it. Um, you must walk down the road of spiritual disciplines. Okay, so last point, and very brief. Godliness is hard, and I'll just be brief here. Uh, so we have to train, train godliness. Um, we see this from Paul in verse 10. He says, we toil, we labor, we suffer, we strive. Why? Because this is eternally valuable, he says. Um, Eugene Peterson, in one of his books, he puts the whole kind of picture we've been painting this way. The person who looks for quick results in the seed planting of well-doing and godliness will be disappointed. If I want potatoes for dinner tomorrow, it will do me little good to go out and plant potatoes in my garden tonight. Uh, there are long stretches of darkness and invisibility and silence that separate planting from reaping. During the stretches of waiting, there is cultivating and weeding and nurturing and planting still of other seeds. In other words, he's saying that there's... a. a Cultivating a deep desire for God requires a deep commitment to, to long-term spiritual practices for the Christian. That's, that's part of the Christian life. That's what he's saying. So a, a few aspects of practical advice about this very briefly. And these are things I've culled from other people just this week, uh, j- just from reading different guys on this. Uh, first, Jesus Christ died for us. So that means you don't have to hold on to guilt about not uh, pursuing godliness in your day-to-day life. Um, you don't have to hold on to that guilt. Jesus killed it on the cross. He crucified it. Um, but he's calling us to, to indeed confess and repent of, of ways that we've neglected this aspect of the Christian life and to change. Um, the second thing is this, and very briefly, the day in and day out habits of spirituality, of pursuing this stuff, is not, uh, we want to go completely different from what they did in monasticism. We want to say that doing this is helpful for us to be subversive in the culture that we exist in. 
Um, in other words, what it means to be a subversive Christian is that in your daily life, you enter into the world, you go to work, you, you're hanging out with your neighbors, whatever, and you're taking on the, what Eugene Peterson calls the coloration of the culture. In other words, you take on some of the color of the culture. But um, he's saying, while if you, if you lose the coloration of the culture, if you stop entering into culture and spending time with people that aren't like you in culture, then you lose effectiveness in ministry. But at the same time, if you enter into the culture without daily habits of spiritual formation, without desire for God, then you also start to be conformed to the culture instead of an agent that transforms it. You see, so in other words, he's saying daily spiritual habits, uh, growing in godliness, training yourself in godliness, is one of the primary ways that we, that we become culture subverters. In other words, showing people another way in the cultures we exist in, a way of truth. Uh, way of life, the way of the cross and the resurrection. Uh, okay, thirdly out of four, what kills spiritual discipline? Um, very briefly, what kills spiritual disciplines? Ruining your appetite for God by being conformed uh, to the things of the world. In other words, idolatry ruins your appetite for spiritual disciplines. Uh, sex, money, and power, those are the three that sum up the whole shebang. Um, Sex, money, and power. Uh, in other words, these things are good. We've we just heard that from Paul. Sex, money, and power. But, uh, sorry, well, I should have left out power probably. Sex and money, at least. Um, these things are good things, but um, they give you highs. But, but if, if they become ultimate, they'll ruin your appetite. They'll, be, they'll become things that you hunger and thirst for ultimately. And that ruins, that, that uh, makes it very difficult to have deep desire for God as, as ultimate. Um, the other things that, that can subvert or kill our ability to, to be spiritually disciplined, boredom, busyness, and lack of rest. Uh, so if, if you're pretty idle and pretty bored in life, oftentimes uh, it's hard to do anything when you're bored. Um, but on the flip side, busyness, and busyness is probably the thing that's much more of a problem for all of us. Uh, stop being busy. Uh, I half joke, but, but seriously, stop, stop being busy. In other words, be unbusy. How do you be unbusy? Well, the one way to help yourself be unbusy is to use your calendar uh, for spiritual discipline. The calendar is sacrosanct. Uh, it's holy. It's set apart, meaning when you put something down on it, it's there. And whenever somebody comes and says, do this, do this, do this, you say, can't do it. I got my calendar here, and it says no, right? Uh, spiritual disciplines, put them on the calendar. Um, set time apart. And I've got an excellent illustration from Moby Dick about that, but we, we don't have time for it, so I'm going to skip it. Um, and then lastly, uh, when you're just starting out and uh, in, in getting involved in spiritual and training for godliness, uh, be brief, be brief. Uh, brevity is longevity. Be brief. Pray brief prayers. Read briefly day to day. Um, don't try to do big, long things. Just be as brief as, po- as possible. So we'll, we'll just close with this. Matt, we start, we ca- had a call to worship from Matthew eleven twenty eight to 29, and it really epitomizes the whole of what we're talking about here. Uh, Jesus says, Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. That's the gospel. That's, the go- that's Jesus saying, Come to the cross. Come and die with me. Come and live with me in resurrection. That's the, that's, that's the gospel. And then he says, take my yoke upon you. 
and learn from me. See, he's called you to the ground of the gospel and then said, now put my yoke upon you. It's much lighter than the yoke of good works that you've been pursuing. It's the yoke of godliness. It's light. It's easy. It's not a burden. It's rest. It's deep desire for the only thing that you were created to live for. Um, Our hearts are restless until we have rest in God. That's godliness. Uh, That's St. Augustine. Um, So uh, this is a call to pursue the gospel-grounded yoke of godliness, our call to worship tonight. Let's pray. Father, we come before you knowing that uh, we've been so inadequate in pursuing you and your face. Uh, You've called us to seek your face uh, because we've been found by you, if we've been found by you. And so we pray, O Lord, tonight that you would give us deep desire to pursue you and that we would know that uh, being committed to to daily practices of worship is, in fact, one of the means that you've given us to to develop desire for you. So we know that it's so hard for us, Lord, so unnatural. So we ask that you would change us and point us in that direction. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.